The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. America, we have come so far. We have seen so much, but there's so much more to do. So tonight, let us ask ourselves, if our children should live to see the next century, if my daughters should be so lucky to live as long as Ann Nixon Cooper, what change will they see? What progress will we have made? This is our chance to answer that call. This is our moment. This is our time to put our people back to work and open doors of opportunity for our kids, to restore prosperity and promote the cause of peace, to reclaim the American dream and reaffirm that fundamental truth that out of many we are one, that while we breathe we hope, and where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America. Well, today, 15 years ago, was the day that we discovered that Barack Obama was going to be the president of the United States. And of course, it was the culmination of what felt like a significant movement. And it was significant in a number of ways. It was a Rubicon in terms of things like social media, or at least it was perceived as such because it was one of the first social media grassroots campaigns. And it was seen as a a Rubicon in terms of dialogue and discourse because we all know now and we take it to some extent for granted. But the manner in which Obama spoke was seen as a significant shift from his predecessor. And one of the people who was responsible for the manner in which he spoke was his speechwriter, Cody Keenan. Cody being a mere babe in arms at the time, I think in his early 20s. We thought it might be appropriate to ask him to have a look back at how things have progressed a decade and a half on. Good morning, Cody. Hey, good morning. It's so nice to be with you again. I am feeling 15 years old. (laughs) Well, you were only 20-something, weren't you? Yeah, when I joined the campaign, I was 26. It is very young to be in a position of such significance and seniority because the speechwriter puts you hand in glove with the candidate. Yeah, and and you know what? Youth was actually sort of our superpower. I mean, he people forget now, but that, that campaign was hard and he was a long shot, you know, not just to win the whole thing, but to get out of the Democratic primary. And he made this bet on young people and gave us a lot of power all across the country to run that campaign. He bet that, you know, Iowa's the first state that has a a caucus and it's 99% white. And he bet that he could send in young people of all backgrounds, all races, all beliefs to these little towns in Iowa and let them organize it. And that bet paid off. Uh, and it was it was pretty extraordinary then and still is now. And he had a unique capacity to inspire. I remember talking to um, Samantha Power around that time, uh, in large part because she was a, a, a Irish and therefore there was a sort of a, a connection. And the sheer level of admiration and belief that she displayed, because again, it was at that point when he was an outsider, you thought there must be something significant in this guy. Can I ask in that context, Cody, I would bet if I had said to you when you were in your 20s with that candidate, you would not expect that America would be where it now is. Would I be right? Absolutely. I mean, not a chance. You know, I mean, we wrote into countless speeches reminders that, you know, progress does not travel in a straight line. You know, the story of America is for all the progress we've made over 250 years, you know, sometimes for every two steps forward, you take a step or two or even three back. I mean, 
that was a constant through his speeches that progress is fragile, democracy is fragile. You got to constantly want it. And when you do get those victories, which are can be few and far between in politics, you got to protect them. You can celebrate, savor, but protect, build on it. And the main goal is to hand things off to the next generation just a little bit better than you found it. And, you know, that's how we felt about ourselves in 2016, that we hadn't, there's no such thing as a perfect presidency. But I think we'd actually surpassed expectations in a lot of ways. And then, you know, to have to have somebody like Donald Trump win that election, that's a big blow. Um, and in some ways, it inspired a lot of citizenship in America that had been dormant. You know, you saw the day Trump took office, you saw the biggest marches in American history. When he put in the Muslim ban, you saw people storming airports and uh, voting rates surged. And so, you know, for, with with the bad came good, too. Um, but, but 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 give me give me the flip of that. With the good, did there come bad? I mean, did you take too much for granted in the actual presidency? I look at things like the nascent Tea Party movement at the time. You look at things like the dismissal of uh, Trump himself. I mean that that famous presidential or the the president's dinner where Obama was so amusing but excoriating of him. Was there too much taken for granted? Was there a chunk of America left behind? Always. There always is. You, you you try to do everything for everybody. You're you're going to let everybody down. Now, I I'm I'm a firm believer that our record holds up. Uh, I don't regret mocking Trump in that dinner. Uh, I would have, if anything, I'd go back and, and do it for for twice as hard and twice as long. But sure, you know, there's this weekend I'm in Chicago with about I think about three thousand of us flew in for for a reunion for these fifteen years, and Obama spoke to us um, the other night. And he spoke to this. You know, you, you got to be able to have two things in your head at the same time. You can, you can look at what's happening in our democracy, what's happening overseas and other democracies, and you always wonder if there were things we could have done differently to change the trajectory we're on today. There's always going to be a gap between reality and what's possible. But one thing for us that is true is what we did 15 years ago, and more importantly, how we did it. You know, like I said, we weren't professionals. We were getting little pay and less sleep. We were knocking on every door in America, even in unfriendly territory. But there was something honest about it. There was a sense of camaraderie about it. There was a belief that people are fundamentally good, even if the news and social media constantly show you otherwise. We respected each other. We loved each other. Sometimes, literally, a lot of us met and married and had kids together. But we respected this country. We bridged divides to the extent that I think anybody can these days. And that part was true. And if it was possible 15 years ago, just 15 years ago, it still is. And that should be fuel. That should be hope. That's worth celebrating. And, you know, I teach now. And so I'm always hammering this into my students. You know, I, every year I send a new crop into the world and I tell them, join a campaign, get involved. Do not give in to easy cynicism. Uh, it achieves nothing. It doesn't make the world better. Make that your goal. As an aside, were you among the cohort who found love on the campaign? Uh, I was, yeah. I met my wife on her first day in the White House in 2011. And uh, we have a little girl now named Grace. Um, you know, I, there's no official tally, but I suspect there are a few hundred children now uh, as a result of people <laughs> who who met and fell in love either on the campaign or in the White House. And, and Obama still complains that nobody has named their child Barack. <laughs> that period between your wife arriving into the White House and you arriving into the White House, it is easy in hindsight to forget just how challenging that was. But what, what you inherited, what the campaign inherited, was the worst economic crisis that we had seen since the Great Depression. You had the TARP program attempting to rescue all of the banks. You had uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac going uh, belly up. 
Did you at any point think in those days that that problem was insoluble? Sure, all the time. I mean, that was, you know, the vast majority of the campaign was happened before any of that did. That all, everything fell apart about with six weeks to go. And we were like, oh my God, you know, we still want this, but things look a lot different. You know, we were all scared too, because it's, it's, we're not immune to what's going on in the broader world. You know, everybody's parents were suddenly losing jobs and homes and, and, and retirement savings. So it was frightening. And as a 26 year old, 27 year old, you're now sitting down with experts being like, can you teach me about the housing market really fast? Um, and there was, you know, there was a real chance we weren't going to win reelection if we didn't dig out of that hole. I mean, it's, it's pretty extraordinary, um, what he was able to do. So you obviously, I mean, you, you, by your own description there, you are a quick study. I have, I have little doubt that you would have spent a lot of time recently thinking about where America has gotten to. What do you think has led it to its current position? And what do you think is the root out? Oh, man, how long do you have? Um, I, I think there's, there's no one thing. You know, there's a lot. It's, I, I, social media gets on my nerves. Uh, I think it exacerbates divisions or at least like it makes it look a lot worse or at least makes everybody angry as you're scrolling through it. But, you know... It, uh, but sorry to cut across you again, Cody, but is that one of those, another area where a trick was missed? I mean, you look at the, the Russian engagement in the last election in terms of the bots that were uh, released onto social media. You look at Steve Bannon's yeah. engagement in social media. You look at Elon Musk and his capacity to control Twitter that he now does. Was there a regulatory miss there? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, there's, you know, there's ways to argue the, the counterfactual is what if he had, what if Obama had tried to regulate social media and everybody viewed it as this massive dictatorial power grab, you know, it's, it's, okay. it's hard to argue either way. Okay. Sorry, um, I cut across you. You were saying social media has won the other areas. One, you know, there's this disconnect between where the economy actually is and how people are feeling about it. And that, that polarization flips back and forth between presidencies. Um, there is kind of this, you know, there is kind of this loneliness in America, even though you've never been more connected. It's all kind of ephemeral and ethereal online. And people don't spend time with each other anymore. There's this, this, and I think President Trump really fostered this and picked at this scab to the point where people don't trust each other uh, like we did even 10, 20 years ago. Um, I fly a lot and it just, people are tougher on airplanes than they used to be. You know, this is all anecdotal stuff, but I, I think there's just this whole kind of stew of things going together that you need good leadership to kind of counteract. I mean, if, if, if President Trump wins again next year, which is a real possibility, he will just work to foster those divisions, make them worse, pick together all the, find all the fissures in our democracy and prime apart. Uh, on on those fissures, Cody, back from. what about the fissures in respect of race? Because if you look objectively at some of the sort of the core numbers, if you look at poverty, if you look at imprisonment, and if you look at the voting divide, Republican to Democrat, the white-black split is extraordinary among sort of developed nations. Yeah, it is. It, it always has been. And that, that's, you know, that's not, I don't think there's anyone, certainly not us, who expected that, you know, the night Barack Obama was sworn in, that racial divide in America would go away. If anyone believed that, uh, <laughs> you could sell him anything. You know, but Obama was not just the first black president, but he won, uh, you know, the white working class vote in the upper Midwest twice. You know, he was able to bridge those divides. They seem further apart now. Um, but by the time by the time we left office, even despite everything we walked into, those those numbers on inequality were getting better almost across the board. You know, the, the black, white race, uh, wealth gap, health care gap. We were we were closing those. 
And he's then he's followed by a president who exploits those divides, who tries to make people afraid of each other. That's just a hard thing to that takes a long time to heal and move past and get better on. That's not just something that a bunch of speeches from, you know, President Biden are going to solve right away. You said there was a significant chance or a significant possibility that Trump might get reelected. If you were a betting man, what way do you think it's going to go? <laughs> I haven't looked at the Ladbrokes odds. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think people need to approach it as a very real possibility. And as, as disillusioned and cynical as people might be, um, things can always get worse. You know, that's not a fun. <laughs> that's the spirit. The, yeah, it's not a fun <laughs> argument to make on the campaign trail. But, you know, you'll see once once President Biden starts engaging in campaign, once President Obama starts engaging in the campaign, once the choice becomes very, very clear. I don't think a ton of people are paying attention right now uh, like they will be a year from now. But um, it's, you know, President Biden's going to be running in a much different environment than he was four years ago when all of us had COVID and couldn't really go anywhere to do anything. Um, but he's got a good record to run on. He's got to make that clear and he's got to make the choice abundantly clear. And, you know, people really need to approach this election as if everything is on the line. Cody, as before I let you go, can I ask you one thing? You'll be familiar with um, Al Bundy in Married with Children who would sit on the couch and, and reminisce about his, his heroic um, performance in high school football. Paul Kai. <laughs> Is there any downside to being in the kind of position that you're in that young? Do you end up 15 years on when you're 40-something looking back at the glory days? Oh my God, yeah. I, you know, I, I made a joke about this. At, uh, I got to give the commencement address at my alma mater, Northwestern University, five years ago. And... Uh, you know, I told the students, there's a real chance. What if you peak at 35, you know, and uh, everything's downhill from there. And yeah, I really do have that feeling a lot. Uh, like the, the best thing I've ever done is is behind me. Um, I compensate for that with myself by, you know, trying to be the best father I can um, by teaching by, by, you know, every year I send out a new few dozen speechwriters out into the world to try to make it a better place. Um, that's how I get through it. You know, if, if, uh, if, if, if I'm now, you know, politics really is a young person's game over here. Um, uh, you just, you don't, you don't get paid a lot. You don't sleep a lot. Uh, that's not something I can do anymore with a, with a two-year-old daughter. But, uh, if I can train a new generation each year to go out and do it, then I'll be making some positive good in the world. I, I lied. I said that was one final thing. Did you name your book the same name as your daughter? Who came first, book or daughter? And why are they the same? Believe it or not, they were both birthed at the same time. Uh, November of 2020. So um, it, it was just kind of, you know, we, my wife and I moved to New York City. She's a New Yorker right before the pandemic, not knowing what was coming. Um, and we uh, discovered she was pregnant at the exact same time. So we're just hunkered down with this new baby. Can't see anybody. You know, New York, I think 35,000 people died in those first few months. And it was frightening. But um, we found grace in that, in that pregnancy. Um, uh, it, you know, it was, it was blessedly complication free. We found grace in our new neighbors, uh, New Yorkers who were looking out for each other. And I've been thinking about this book for a long, long time. And, and the basic thesis of it is grace. Uh, and so, you know, I remember my wife and I looked at each other. We were like, this is a no brainer. Well, if you want to read the book, um, it is about a, a hugely significant period in the Obama administration in and around the 2015 church massacre in um, Charleston and, and the eulogy in which Cody was involved. Uh, the title is Grace and the author is Cody Keenan. Cody, thanks so much. Really nice to be with you. 
The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday mornings from 10. On News Talk.